This is Talking in Vain, the official podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We connect with leaders in the infusion specialty to discuss issues important to you and your practice. INS podcasts are funded through an educational grant from BD. BD, helping all people live healthy lives. Visit them at www.bd.com. Welcome to Series 1, Episode 1 of Talking in Vain, the official INS podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Barrett, and I am pleased to bring today a guest speaker. Her name is Britt Meyer. Britt is the nurse manager of operations for the vascular access team at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Britt, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I know we get lots of questions about it. Maybe we can make things a little more um, clear for our audience. We're doing on complications happen. And I think one, as you said, one of the the many questions we get is related to infiltrations and extravasations. Many people don't know the difference between them. And that can pose a problem. So what is the difference? What can you tell us an infiltration and an extravasation? What are they? Well, essentially what happens, anytime that you're running an IV medication, if you put a hole in the vessel wall and that IV medication or that fluid leaks out of the vessel wall into the subcutaneous tissue, that's considered an infiltration. Mm -hmm. It just means that that fluid's not in the vein. It's now partially in the vein and partially out in that subcutaneous tissue. And then the difference between an infiltration and an extravasation is that an extravasation is the infiltration of a vesicant medication. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more um, later about what constitutes a vesicant. Extravasation is always an infiltration, but an infiltration is not always an extravasation. That's exactly right. Okay. Are there certain individuals, patient populations, or things that put people at risk for this? Is it going to happen to everybody? Are there special things that put people at risk? Well, there are a lot of things that put patients at risk. You know, it can be um, related to the patients themselves. So in your pediatric population where you have children that are way more mobile than adults sometimes and they would be at higher risk of developing an infiltration. makes it harder to secure those lines Mm -hmm. as well. Your geriatric population where you have folks that can tend to be confused or have really thin skin or folks that are on um, steroid medications, they tend to be at higher risk for developing infiltrations as well. Their vessels are just not as as healthy and so that puts them at at higher risk. Are there some devices that are more prone to causing an infiltration than others? Well, obviously the shorter your catheter is, the higher the likelihood that you're going to end up with an infiltration. If you have a central access device that encompasses a lot of the vein and the tip is in the right place and you don't and the catheter is not malpositioned, then there's less risk that you would end up with an infiltration in that CVAD. The only caveat to that is if the CVAD develops a fibrin sheath around it, mm-hmm. you can have a fibrin sheath that covers the entire length of that catheter and your medication then is really infusing back at the end of the sheath and not where the tip of the catheter is. So it could get closer um, to the insertion site in the vessel. And absolutely, that. and that, that's where we end up seeing infiltrations, um, you know, particularly if you're running chemotherapy and you've got a sheath that that ends back in the subclavian vein, 
then you don't have a lot of hemodilution and you can end up with a really bad stravization back up in that mm -hmm. area. But typically, your peripheral IVs and your really short catheters are at higher risk for infiltrations. Can't have infiltrations um, around a Huber needle in an implanted access device if your Huber, Huber needle becomes dislodged. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, one of the most important things about this entire process in preventing infiltrations is to make sure that your devices are correctly stabilized. I also read something recently about ultrasound placement of peripheral IV devices in the fact that you can actually see further down to a, a deeper vessel, but if your catheter isn't long enough, you could put the patient at risk for an infiltration. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And, you know, we're seeing more and more ultrasound-guided lines in, in the industry-wide, in, industry and, and so I think that's true. It also depends on whether or not your inserters are really adept at looking at that vessel in the longitudinal view, mm -hmm. making sure there is enough catheter in the main so that when the patient turns their arm over, that you're not just going to pull that catheter right out of the vessel. So I, I think as we're using more ultrasound guidance to place lines, the um, experience of the clinician is going to make a huge difference in making sure that that catheter is actually long enough so that you have enough vessel purchase to prevent it from backing out of the, out of the vein which helps a great deal in, in placing access devices, as well as competencies, too. And that's also a huge question that comes up, is where do I get competencies? And they really are based on the facility that you're working for and the policies and procedures. And you should be able to find some kind of training with the, the company or organization you work for, correct? Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really important, every clinician that's using devices needs to look at the manufacturer's information for use or the IFU for that particular product to make sure that you know how to use it appropriately. Obviously, INS has policies and procedures that are, are published, but each individual organization is going to have a policy and procedure that's specific to them, and then providers really are um, held accountable to using those policies and procedures. And um, IV therapy is something that is, is very dangerous, and so it's important that we have really good competencies and that our clinicians become um, not only competent, but competent over time, right, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. as they practice these skills. And one of the things I find is that, you know, nurses, particularly nurses at the bedside, may not use this skill as much as your vascular access team nurses, so it's harder for them to develop that competence. And people also want to know how much they need to do to become competent. And it really, there isn't a specific number of either attempts or, you know, dressing changes or whatever the competency is. There's no magic number. That's absolutely correct. What we say here is when the clinician can perform the procedure with, with all of the appropriate steps without being cued, then we consider that person to be competent to perform that skill. And that's different for every individual inserter. You have some people who catch on really quickly and they can do it with a couple of sticks and others that take, you know, many, many more sticks before they can really um, demonstrate that competency. That's probably more the way we need to look at it is, is that you're not being prompted to complete a procedure, that you're confident and comfortable in doing it with somebody watching, that's, right. that's where you're going to be competent. Excellent. As far as these two 
complications go. Are, is there anything like the therapy that we're doing that's, that re- could be related to it and causing it? Are there certain drugs, amount of time, anything like that? Well, you know, just in general, the longer that you have an access device in place, the higher the risk that you're going to end up with a complication with it. So the longer that you use that line, and and depending on the type of medicine that you give through it, whether it's an irritant or a vesicant, will increase the risk for infiltration or extravasation. Irritants typically are those drugs that have the ability to cause phlebitis or just an irritation to the vessel Mm -hmm. intima, whereas your vesicant medications have the ability to cause tissue sloughing and blistering. And I will say that INS recently had a vesicant task force that was put together and there's a great manuscript in the Journal of Infusion Nursing that also has a checklist that's available with it, and I think that's uploaded on in our learning center as well. It, exactly, it is. Um, and I will make sure that I post links to both of those in the show notes that will be accompanying this podcast when we're done, too. So thank you for, for bringing that up. We have an infiltration of a medication. The medication is a vesicant. We can expect to see then some damage. What kind of damage do we see? Well, it just depends. Um, A lot of it depends on how much of the medication actually infiltrates, Mm -hmm. right? Um, If you have just a small amount of medicine that infiltrates, it could be that you just have a little bit of a change in color. You could have a patient have just complain of a little bit of pain or they could have some vague symptoms. The more of the medicine that infiltrates or extravasates, you, um, and the more swelling that you have, usually the higher the likelihood that you'll have pain associated mm-hmm. with that. You can have fluid leaking from the insertion site um, if you have a, an infiltration or an extravasation. And, and obviously, you wouldn't necessarily have a blood return on that, on that line as well. But I must say, we have to be really careful because you actually can have an infiltrated IV and still be able to get a blood return. If you put a hole in the back wall of that vessel, right, you still could have a blood return. The color and consistency of that blood may not be exactly the same, but it's really important that we want to make sure that we have a blood return that really has the color and consistency of whole blood, that the line flushes well, that the patient doesn't complain of pain, that there's no swelling around that site, no redness around that site. If you're talking about um, central venous access devices, right, then you maybe would be looking for this raised area on the neck or the chest, um, and it may or may not be visible. Pain may be the first symptom that you see. Yeah. Um, What about um, IV pumps? A lot of people are saying that, oh, the IV pump is going to let me know if there's an infiltration. Do they have that type of capability? The IV pumps are really great because they have pressure settings that alert us when pressures um, change, right? Right. if I have an infiltrated IV, there's not going to be that pressure against the vessel that would then cause that pump to alarm. Mm-hmm. And so what we tell people to do is if you, if you don't know whether or not your IV is infiltrated, let's say you have a patient that just has really a lot of edema and you're not sure whether or not your IV is infiltrated, if you'll tie a tourniquet just a couple of inches above your insertion site, you would expect that your pump would alarm if the IV is working correctly, right? Okay. But and if would... the IV 
It's going to alarm because you've occluded the vessel then. There's, there's the increase in the pressure. It can't push against that occlusion. Exactly. And so when that pressure gets high enough, that pump is set to alarm. But if you have an infiltration and there's a hole in the vessel wall, there's going to be no pressure building up there because your fluid is actually leaking out into the subcutaneous tissue. So that can be one way that you can help. We call it a tourniquet test. Okay. Um, that you can help to determine if you, if you have an infiltration. But you just have to be really careful that you don't rely on that pump to determine if your IV is infiltrated. We need to be doing thorough assessments of our vascular access devices on a really routine basis um, to make sure that these devices are working appropriately. Excellent. So we have our medication. It looks like, oh, the patient's starting to say, I've got a little pain and this is kind of tender and you look at it, it looks a little swollen. What do we need to do? in order to treat what we're suspecting is an infiltration? Well, I think the very first thing, and, and you would think that this would, would be the thing that would come to mind first, but it doesn't always happen, is to stop your infusion, mm -hmm. right? Until, until you can determine whether or not your IV is functioning correctly, you want to stop that infusion. Okay. You want to assess below the site for capillary refill, make sure the patient can move the extremity and that they have good sensation. Make sure that you can can get a blood return on that device. You don't want to try to flush it because if the IV is infiltrated in your, or you can end up with an extravasation if you introduce that drug into the subcutaneous tissue. Okay. And then if you've determined that yes, absolutely, this, this IV is infiltrated and I am running an irritant or a vesicant, then I would want to pull back and aspirate from that vascular access device um, and try to get any drug that might be in that subcutaneous tissue that I could withdraw out. Okay. Because like I said earlier, the more drug that you have in the tissue, the more likely you are going to have to have damage and potentially have patients that end up having to have skin grafts or things like that. Mm -hmm. If there's an antidote um, for that particular drug that has been infiltrated or extravasated, then we would want to apply that antidote, and there are several different ones on the market. We don't really have time to go into yeah. all of those today, but the important piece is to know what drug you're giving and to know if there is an antidote in the event that you have an infiltration or an extravasation. Okay. And then obviously, you want to outline the area with a marker, maybe take photos if that's something that your organization allows you to do. You're going to notify your provider um, so that they know what's going on. Try to estimate the amount of drug that's infiltrated. Um, it, elevate the extremity, get it up above the level of the heart, and then you're going to apply, um, apply the appropriate clinical management. And that's going to be determined by the drug that was given. And there's a lot of, of conflicting reports in the literature as to whether or not we use heat or cold mm -hmm. um, for some of these drugs. But again, very important that nurses know in advance what drugs they're giving so that they're able to um, manage that in a timely manner. A lot of the antidotes that we give, the quicker that you give the antidote, the better the outcomes are for patients as well. So let's say we get an infiltration. What, it, you know, and, and we didn't catch it and it went too far. What yeah. are some of the ramifications of, of a, a, an infiltration? Well, if you think about it, let's just say that we were running 125 milliliters an hour of IV fluids into a patient's arm. You know, if you don't catch that infiltration for a couple of hours, 
got 250 milliliters of fluid in That's that a lot of fluid. Certainly it, is, it absolutely is, and you can end up with a compartment syndrome oh, um, yeah. very easily. The other thing that you can end up with is complex regional pain syndrome, and this is just one of the most sad things that can happen to patients. It's something that affects them for the rest of their lives and, and can be completely debilitating for them, mm -hmm. um, you know, where we do damage to the nerves and and it's just it's one of those things that no nurse would ever want that to happen on their watch. So it's just really important that we pay attention to what we're doing. And then if you if you have an extravasation, you can lose function to that extremity and, and even amputation. There was a lady on the national news several years ago that lost her arm above the elbow to a Finnergan extravasation. Oh, yeah. And it's just I, I think the other piece of it that, that I, I I don't think we think about is if you have, you know, an IV that, that extravasates in a patient's hand and they have to have a skin graft, they're going to have to present their extremities to, to people at the grocery store, right? Sure, yeah. um, their body image may be changed for the entire rest of their life because of something that, that we could have prevented if we were assessing and, and were really knowledgeable uh, about IV therapy. Exactly. Um, and, and with an extravasation as well, you're probably not going to see that kind of damage occur immediately. Um, from what I understand, it can take a few days to start seeing blistering or tissue damage. That's so true. And, and the reason for that is you have this vasoconstriction that starts to happen related to these drugs. And then mm -hmm. down in the microcirculation, that vasoconstriction actually gets worse over time instead of better. And that's why we try to get as much drug out of that site as we can and get our antidotes to that site so that we open those vessels back up and promote vasodilation as quickly as possible um, because the, the effects of an extravasation do get worse over time um, and patients can end up having to have skin grafts or you know, having to, to go through procedures that, that can be just really terrible. Right. So uh, a big key factor there for the nurse is to make sure that patient, their caregivers, their significant others are educated in what to look for and what to report to us. Absolutely. You know, one of the things we see is that patients will, they don't want to have their IVs changed out, so they may mm -hmm. put up with a little pain, right? Yeah. And we all know that a painful IV is an IV that needs to be removed. And so doing really good education and talking to patients and families about looking for redness and swelling and leaking and pain and reporting those things to their provider very quickly is so important in limiting the sequela of this. Yeah, and then for the, the nurse that's caring for that patient to really do a good thorough assessment when the patient is having yeah. those issues. Yeah. We were talking a little bit earlier before we started to record. Uh, if you had any experiences or knew of of a case you could tell us about infiltration and, and what it turned out to be. You said you did have something. How, what was that? Yeah. You know, I think um, something that, that's not typically well known is that if you stole an IV distal to a previous venipuncture, right, mm -hmm. you run the risk that you're going to have an infiltration. And sometimes, I, you know, I think we get away with it, you know, we'll, we'll do that and no harm comes to the patient. So we kind of think that that's a, an okay thing to do. And we had a patient, I don't know, it's probably been a couple of years ago now that came down to have a pick line placed and the forearm was just really, really swollen and um, they actually had done an upper extremity ultrasound on this patient thinking that they 
had developed the DBT. Mm -hmm. um, and what had actually happened is that we had tried to start a peripheral IV distal to a previous site earlier than we should have, and we had a terrible infiltration. Oh, okay. Um, and it took us a little while to figure out that that's what was going on. But there was probably, I don't know, 150 milliliters of oh, fluid wow. in the forearm, which made it look like, right, that the patient may have a thrombus there, but it was just clinical practice and error in clinical practice that had caused that. Yeah, so again, it's extremely important to know what you're assessing and frequent assessments and listening to the patient there. So could yeah. you real quick again maybe run over what some of the signs and symptoms are of an infiltration? The signs and symptoms, well, first and foremost, you're going to have an IV. It can be very vague, but most of the time what you're going to see is some change in color and some swelling. patient may or may not report some pain, um, and you may have some fluid that's leaking back out the insertion site and okay. a lack of blood return usually. Okay. What kind of medications? Can, I know there's a ton of them, and it would take us forever to, to start going through them, but vesicant medications. Not everybody gives vesicants, but you need to be aware if you are giving a vesicant. Yes. So many, many of your chemotherapy agents, mm -hmm. right, are vesicants. Um, a lot of your electrolyte medications are also vesicants. One that people don't know too much is your CT contrast yeah. is also a vesicant. Finnegan can be a vesicant. And then some of our things like Valium, Valium is another drug. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then even some of our pain medications can, can have um, irritant and vesicant properties as well. Sure. So it's really important that if we don't know what that medication is and if there's a possibility of it that we, you know, collaborate with our pharmacy staff too, I mean, they'd be able to help us with that, knowing what to do or what kind of a, a medication, if it's a vesicant or not. Yeah, and you know, that's when we, you're determining whether or not that drug should be run peripherally or centrally. Correct. You know, like if you have vasopressors and things like that that you're running, we typically don't run those vasopressors for very long in a peripheral IV because the risk of infiltration and extravasation goes up dramatically um, after four hours. So those kinds of things, collaborating with your provider and with your pharmacist to determine if that's the right drug for that line, right? and right. how long that drug can safely be run in that line. Excellent. Well, I think we got a really good start and uh, a lot of knowledge on what infiltration and extravasation is and what to do when we see it. Britt, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Michelle. I enjoyed being here today.